Hello and welcome to Get Flushed, the portable sanitation podcast. My name's Pete and I'll be your host for today's show and the rest of the series. If you've listened to the introductory episode, you'll know that this podcast is all about portable toilets and the people who do their business in the portable sanitation industry. You'll know that I've worked in that industry and that I hope to use my knowledge and experience to share an insider's view and explore the myths and realities of the world of portable toilets. I hope to introduce some of my friends and colleagues that I've met along the way and encourage them to share their stories and ideas in what I hope will be an interesting and enjoyable series. Today's episode is all about setting the scene. Everybody, I'm sure, is familiar with portable toilets. You see them all around the world. A plastic cabin with a white roof and a bowl inside that's a toilet. Today, I'm going to think about the history of the portable toilet cabin, think about why we need them, why we use them, how they're manufactured, and some of the common features that you find in those cabins around the world. If we think back through history, the very first portable toilets would have been nothing more than the nearest open space. Anybody caught short would and could, I'm sure, have found a suitable spot to hoist their skirt or drop their pants and take a quick comfort break. That wouldn't have been particularly hygienic and there wouldn't have been an awful lot in the way of privacy. And it wouldn't have been acceptable by the time we got to the Industrial Revolution when large numbers of people started to come together to form workforces. So why do we use portable toilets today? Well, in the Western and developed world, it's largely a matter of convenience. Where there's not a network of underground sewers and pipes, we take portable toilets and we put them in on the site or the location and people can go to the bathroom without worrying about hygiene. In other parts of the world that don't have plumbed in sewers, portable toilets are a necessity rather than a convenience. It's a simple fact, sanitary hygiene is essential to public health. Historians and archaeologists have found examples of what we'd describe as chamber pots from as long ago as the 6th century BC. And these would have been carved wooden bowls, metal containers or clay and china pots. And in Victorian eras, porcelain pots with a handle known as a gazunda because it went under the bed. It's not difficult to imagine chambermaids taking filled pots each morning, opening the window and launching the contents into the street below, woe betide any unsuspecting passers-by. It was during World War II that portable toilets known as LSAN chemical toilets started to be used quite commonly. And we found these in long-range bombers and maritime patrol aircraft and in shipbuilding yards. In aircraft, these would have been little more than a tin bucket with a lid and a good glug of formaldehyde or some other strong-smelling chemical, which was there to suppress the smell of the wheeze and the poos with an even more pungent aroma. There are some great stories about Elson toilets during World War II on a website called Ted Church Tail End Charlie. And the website pulls together eyewitness accounts from the time. And from reading those, Elsan toilets in planes were a far cry from the vacuum toilets you find in passenger jets today. If we move into shipbuilding yards during World War II, there was a sense of urgency that only came with war. Ships needed to be laid down and built as quickly as possible, and they just didn't have time to allow workers to leave the ship and find toilets on the wharf or the quayside. 
that would have just slowed production down and caused an unacceptable delay in the war effort. So we saw at that time cartable or craneable toilets were used and these were typically a wooden cubicle or a shed with a toilet bucket inside and they'd be lifted or craned into place and then removed at the end of the job. Now I don't imagine they were much better than the LSAN toilets found in the planes but at least they did afford the user some privacy. The development of fiberglass during the 1950s and 60s saw some lighter alternatives to wooden cabins being used. However, anybody who works with fiberglass knows that it can be heavy and brittle and it's not always resistant to UV light and so it does degrade. Also, fiberglass is porous and if you've ever used a fiberglass portable toilet as an operator, you'll know that it's very difficult to remove the foul odour or smell. It seems to cling to the very essence of the fiberglass. Talking to friends who worked in the industry during the 60s and 70s, they've also told me about toilet sheds. And these were large wooden buildings usually that were sat upon a tank. And typically they would include stalls or pans or urinals inside and the waste would just fall down directly into the tank below. Now I can't imagine that they would have been terribly portable, but they would have provided a temporary sanitation solution where there wasn't a plumbed in network and where large numbers of people gathered. In the 1960s, a patent was issued in America to George Harding, who was a co-founder of the Polyjohn Corporation, which is still in operation in the industry today, and the patent was for an individual portable restroom made of polyethylene plastic. Those restrooms hit the market in the 1970s and they proved to be much more durable, lighter in weight and easier to manoeuvre than wooden or fibreglass alternatives. Now anyone who wants to know more about the history of portable toilets should visit www.onsiteco.com which has a potted history of portable toilets through the ages. That's a real potted history and today I want to think about the way those modern polyethylene toilets are manufactured and put together and some of the key components that go into making up a portable toilet today. Now these toilets come in a huge range of colours and shapes and sizes but the design and methods of construction and manufacture are fairly typical. The base, tank, sink and urinal are usually formed by rotational moulding and that's because they tend to be hollow shapes that can't be easily pressed. Smaller parts like door handles and hinges are usually made by injection moulding and that's a process that shoots molten plastic into a mould, leaves it to harden and dry and then the finished articles are turned out. Side panels and doors tend to be vacuum packed and that's because they're made from large sheets of plastic that are pulled over a mould, heat and pressure are applied and the plastic takes on the required shape. And those panels usually have ridges or folds in them to give them structural rigidity. If you ever pick one up before the cabins assemble, they tend to be fairly wobbly, but by the time they're all joined together, usually with aluminium pop rivets, they form a really robust shell. And the roof goes on top, another piece that's made by vacuum pressing, and again, you typically see ridges which give it some strength. Once the cabin, base and roof have been assembled, the toilet tank can be fixed inside, and there are usually two different types of toilet tank. The open tank or long drop, and the flusher. The open tank typically has a hole in the top where the seat and the lid fit and if you lift the seat, you look down, you'll see the empty chamber and any septic waste inside. The flushing tank usually has a flush mechanism, either fresh water flush, 
uses fresh water from a holding tank, much in the same way as your plumbed-in toilet at home. And the second is a recirculating flusher, which has a baffle or a filter connected to a pump in the bottom of the tank. Any particles are screened out and the treated water is used to flush the toilet. I note that flushing toilets are less popular in the United States where most providers use long drops and it's vice versa in many parts of Europe and the UK where flushing toilets seem to be the standard and long drops less common. Now I've been told that situation is largely driven by fashion and perhaps by perceptions around hygiene or health and safety but for me there's also an issue that some people just don't want to see other people's waste inside the loo. I don't want to say too much more about these different types of toilets now because I'm going to look at the pros and cons of them and the challenges of servicing long drops compared to flushes at a later stage in the series. Now when they leave the manufacturing plant, many of those toilets are shipped in flat pack form on pallets or in containers. Yeah sure, some manufacturers ship out units ready constructed, but when they're going internationally, it makes sense to save money and space on freight. When those flat pack toilets arrive at their destination, they have to be assembled, and that's usually a job done by a team of two people. Typically, it takes about half an hour to assemble a standard toilet from start to finish. Now, I've seen teams take much longer than that, and I know of one team that can knock out a Meridian portable toilet in less than 15 minutes. Okay, that's been a pretty whistle-stop review of the history, design, manufacture and assembly of modern plastic portable toilets, and it's quite a good place to stop. Next week, we'll start to look at the logistics of hiring toilets, and we'll talk to some of the people who operate at the sharp end as portable toilet providers. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe so you get the next episode delivered direct to your device. I've been Pete, and you've been listening to Get Flushed, the portable sanitation podcast. <laughs> <laughs>